welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hello, I'm Steve. I'm an Arsenal fan, and uh, I run findpubsport.com, which is a website where you can find local venues for live sport. Hi, I'm Richard. I'm a Manchester City fan. You can uh, get me on Twitter at Richard the Burns. I write for Yahoo Sport UK about City, and uh, I write for TypicalCity.org, Manchester City blog. Yeah, hi, I'm uh, Jake. Uh, support Newcastle. Uh, you can get my stuff on EPL Index and on Total Dutch Football, and you can get me on Twitter at Jake Jackman with two ends. All right, thanks so much for joining us, guys. Uh, a little bit of a warning to the listeners out there. Our uh, editing time has been cut in half due to the necessity of seeing Star Wars, because not only do I love it, uh, but I have a friend that is in it. So if you hear any audio gaps or any issues like that, I guess just I hope that you deal with it in a very gracious way and trust that we will be back to full strength in following weeks. Now that that excuse has been put out in the air, we'll start off with Steve, whose Arsenal were very briefly top of the table uh, before Leicester reclaimed it. How have you been feeling about Arsenal of late? I have never been more pleased to be knocked off the top of the Premier League table (laughs) than I was when Leicester beat Chelsea on Monday night. Um... Yeah, it was. It's, it's been a good week. Um, of course, it started. I go back to the beginning. Um, it started with the Olympiacos win away at Olympiacos. There are all these stats about how we'd struggled there away before. We needed at least a two-goal win or to win three-two or better um, because of the silly rule where you have to do the reverse score and carry the three and times it by a cubed. Um, that means they can't just. Can't, couldn't possibly just do goal difference in the Champions League, but it doesn't matter because we got the re- result we needed. Giroud was on fire despite being um, kicked from pillar to post, kneeing the back at one point, twisted his ankle just before the second goal. Um, and big shout out as well to Joel Campbell, who has come into the team and really grown uh, the ball for the second goal that Giroud scored where he just split the the defence apart was was absolutely superb and it was a nice moment for him uh, when he got bought off in that game because he was uh, he was applauded by both uh, by both sets of fans because of course he was on loan with Olympiacos for a short while as well so uh, yeah that was a good night very enjoyable um, and in the end wasn't too much of a wrinkle so uh, so yeah, that was fun um, then that was followed on the weekend. Another goal for Giroud. Ramsey has come back into the team, doing quite well in that middle section of the uh, of the pitch or, or the middle part of midfield because he was out on the right before. Um, another result, as you say, that took us temporarily to the top of the league. To be perfectly honest, it was that game was a very run of the mill game. Um, there was nobody particularly outstanding, or, or uh, and nothing particularly outstanding about the game. Um, it was a, a regulation win, which you don't often get as an Arsenal fan. So that's um, that's almost outstanding in itself. Um, but Aston Villa are terrible. They are just an awful football team. Um, so even, I mean, they say about Arsenal not getting into second gear um, or third gear or fourth, but Arsenal barely needed to be in gear. It felt like Arsenal were in neutral for the whole game and still managed to keep a clean sheet and score twice. Um so uh 
so there was that, as you say, it took us to the top of the league for a short while. It's good to be up there. Um, and uh, then it was taken away from us by a very deserving Leicester team on Monday night with a, with a good result over Chelsea. Um, uh, unbelievably, obviously, I'm straying away from Arsenal here, but unbelievably, the uh, the the odds makers still had Chelsea as favourites um, for Monday night, despite the fact that they were <laughs> what six fifteenth, sixteenth in the league, and, and Leicester City were top. Just on based on their name value, uh, Chelsea were favourites for the match, but um, but no, it went to form. Uh, Leicester knocked Arsenal off the top, but but honestly, it's the happiest I've ever been to be knocked off the top of the league. Um, and obviously, it's good to be at the moment. There's sort of a feeling that at some point Leicester are going to get some injuries because they haven't been able, they haven't had any major injuries that have kept people out for a long period of time, um, and they've played a very solid eleven, which has kept them up the top there. And there is a general feeling that they will fall away. If they don't, fair enough. I'm not going to say they will, but there's a general feeling that they will. So it's good. I'm sort of as an Arsenal fan at the moment just wanting to stay at the top of the the team of us the the group of established teams if you see what i mean yeah um, and then kind of trusting Leicester may fall off yeah um especially given arsenal's injury issues at the moment a few players have started to, to kind of trickle back sanchez might be back for the game against manchester city on monday night which would be nice it'll be it'll be interesting to see if sanchez and suarez the two superstar south americans both return both possibly a little bit rusty, but both with the ability to change a game, um, even if not 100% fit. So so that'll be an interesting game to look forward to. But in the meantime, Arsenal, as I say, are top of that, that group of established sides up there. Um, and Leicester, it's fantastic that they are up there. It's good for the game. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of assuming that they will, will drop away, rightly or wrongly. Um, so it's good to be to be top of that group, as it were. Yeah, uh, you mentioned that Alexis may come back. Uh, a lot of people in the fantasy community are saying that when Alexis is back, it kind of interferes with Giroud's uh, uh, chances that he often gets because now Alexis t- is taking some of them. Is that a sentiment that rings true with you, or do you think they can happily coexist? Um, it is statistically. It has statistically been found that when Alexis is on the pitch, Giroud... Um, scores fewer, and I don't think Alexis is as productive with Alex uh, with Giroud on the pitch. Um, so they might sort of interfere with each other. Not in that way. It's a family friendly show. Um, <laughs> I uh, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. The other dynamic, the other kind of wild card in the whole thing, is that that um, element of them not being the best not having the best chemistry because it seems like Sanchez and Walcott work quite well together. So if Walcott's up front and Sanchez is, is kind of coming in off the wing, it seems that works quite well together. But what we haven't seen is Sanchez on the left, Giroud in the middle and Ramsey behind them. Um, because if you have Ramsey, because Ramsey was over on the right-hand side doing something slightly different. So if Ramsey's running into the box and creating that sort of space for Giroud in the middle to... Um, bother defenders the way he does and Alexis to run in from the left with Ozil firing his pinpoint passes around. Um, it might be that the key to unlocking the Giroud-Sanchez partnership is Ramsey creating that space. I mean, we shall see. Um, and usually my tactical mouse is about as effective as a dead squirrels. But um, <laughs> I'm interested to see if, 
if that does in fact have an effect going forward. All right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, next up, we have Richard, who last time he was on told us that Manchester City would struggle against Stoke. A certain handsome host questioned that, <laughs> saying that Stoke had scored the fewest goals in the league. There was no way they could win. Losses like that have kind of messed with City's season a little bit, especially with teams like Chelsea nowhere near the title chase. Have you been a little bit disappointed lately with City's performances? Uh, yeah, um, very much so. I mean, there was just over a week ago in the Champions League where City finally, finally managed to crack finishing top of the group, which has felt like a long time coming um, and felt like even though Juventus were losing on the night, it felt like City were going to uh, squander that opportunity. But they got a good reward for uh, a very strong second half showing against Borussia Mönchengladbach. Um, it was great to see Raheem Sterling getting a couple of goals because he, he has a lot of critics that I think are... Um, massively undeserved. He's far from the finished product, but he's what he's doing at his age in the Premier League and the Champions League with the pressure of playing for a club with City's expectations and uh, you know the, the pressure of playing in in the Champions League and, and carrying the price tag that he is doing. Uh, I, th- I think he's actually playing fantastically well. I think he's made such a difference to everything that City do. Uh, so it was great to see him get big reward on, on what was it, a pretty big night for City um, and I'm sure capped off his 21st birthday pretty nicely for him. Uh, so that was a, a a huge positive in what has been a disappointing few weeks. Um, but then come the Swansea game at weekend, they just... Everything regressed massively again. I mean, we're against a side that had won, I think it was one in 11 um, of, the, of the previous 11 games. And they came to us without a manager to our ground. And it was just another case of a team that had clearly taken great notice of the blueprint that Liverpool and Tottenham have set in how to beat City and uh, that that Stoke followed magnificently against us a couple of weeks ago and they tore us apart. But it is now obvious that any team that presses us high up the pitch, that that presses on our defence, is going to get a bit of joy out of it. And then Swansea despite falling behind in, I think it was the 26th minute, um, City couldn't capitalise on that, partly through their own uh, their own failures. Um, they don't have any mobility up front when Wilfred Bonny plays, and that lack of mobility restricts the creativity of Sterling um, and Silva behind him, and, and latterly De Bruyne, who came on as a substitute. Uh, and, and that's really frustrating to see, because you've got this creative brilliance sitting behind the striker, and then a striker who naturally restricts them because he doesn't move to create the space. And it, it, I feel sorry for him because it's not his fault that he doesn't fit the system, but he just doesn't. Um, and so it's it's causing City problems. Um, and so we never looked like being able to, to muster too much more after we'd gone ahead. And then, I mean, Swansea had the better chances. We, we won that game largely thanks to a, another brilliant performance from Joe Hart, who... It was just a commanding performance. His, his one-on-ones were brilliant. It, yeah, his, his dominance of his area at, at set plays was superb. Um, so that was at least that was something pleasing to see. The defence was once again absolutely horrendous. And it's right and it's to be expected that when you take Vincent Company out of the defence, it's going to be that bit worse because you're taking one of the best defenders in Europe out of the team. You can't take the best player out of any team and expect them to be as good. So I, I accept that there's going to be a slight drop-off. But the lack of organisation is um, is extraordinary. I mean, there was one point where I was I just focused on watching Otamendi and Mangala in the first half, mm-hmm. and Swansea had the ball around 35 
maybe 30 yards from goal. And Otamendi was sort of on the, the front foot of where the ball was. He was sort of closest to it. And so struck me as the natural leader for, for that position. And he looked behind him to tell Mangala to push out. And at the exact same time he did that, Mangala gave the instruction to drop back. Each followed their own instruction and left, left Swansea with a massive gap to try and exploit. And a better team would have done it. So, I mean, that's, that's like in a microcosm sums up quite a lot of our problems at the back there's just there's no leadership there at all um but with you know it's you don't want to be too down on a victory and that after we conceded a goal in the 88th minute to go to the other end and win it with a great deal of fortune in the way the ball deflected off Ian Atjo and that was pleasing and that's a, a, I think five games we've won in stoppage time this season which obviously speaks volumes of if nothing else of the mental fortitude that they've got but then you look at the bigger picture and you look who those last minute wins have been against and you've got a question why um, we can't kill off Norwich and, and Swansea and, and Crystal Palace earlier and that's with no disrespect to those teams because they've all come to us and set up well at what they wanted to do um, but that isn't really good enough for, for what City are trying to do they've got to be more on the front foot uh, and, and not just be able to say well the other team came and gave it a good go we should be better than that we shouldn't be conceding sloppy goals um, Mangala was the the root cause of Swansea's equaliser because once again his reading of the game was dreadful I mean if you watch him the way he runs after the balls it's played into the box he's like an excited dog on a beach running after a beach ball and he completely <laughs> he completely forgets about Gomez he's only interested in the ball and then eight nine yards from goal ends up behind the striker having started in front of him and with the momentum to run onto the ball himself it's really um, it's baffling because he started the season so well um, but he's he's massively dropped off and he's a player who needs his hand holding very, very tightly through games. And for as good as Otamendi is, and I really do think he's the real deal as a centre-back, um, he hasn't got a handle on that leadership at the moment. And so that's something that needs to be worked on massively in training. That comes back to Pellegrini. Um, and then... This week, there's been, although it's a slight diversion from City, uh, it very much ties into us. Uh, we've, there's finally been the news that there will soon be news about Pep Guardiola. Uh, and we all know what that news is going to be because it's it's everywhere. He's going to be leaving Bayern Munich at the end of the season. It's no secret that uh, Chiki Bergerestein and Ferran Soriano, as the, the overlords of City's recruitment strategy, are, are desperate to bring in Guardiola. Um, it's... It seems that's been the strategy all along. They gave uh, Pellegrini a three-year contract when they knew that was what Guardiola had signed at Bayern Munich. So it seems that the, the, the long-term gain has been to bring Guardiola to City. Um, it's, it's very much been in the planning for, I think, ever since those two came to the club. Um, and it makes perfect sense because they gave him his chance at Barcelona. So you can you can see uh, their thinking. They obviously know what he's about. He is, in my opinion, the best manager in the world. And if we are fortunate enough to recruit him, um, I think it would change everything for us. So the Pellegrini's got that hanging over his head now, presumably for the rest of the season. I wouldn't expect any kind of an announcement before that. Obviously, there are other clubs that will be interested in his services because... Uh, recruiting Guardiola at this point in his career is obviously a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I desperately hope it's one that City can uh, can take advantage of and that we don't lose him to uh, to Chelsea or Manchester United. I think that would be um, that would be a bit of a sickener. Uh, but it's certainly it's very much a, a focus at City at the moment. We we are almost certainly going to be looking at a new manager in the summer. Um, and it has been primed for a long time that that would be Pep Guardiola. So mm. my fingers will be crossed until May that he's signing on the dotted line at the Etihad. 
Yeah, uh, before you were talking about managers a little bit there, mentioned kind of some of the smaller sides that have played well against you. A lot of times on this show we've talked about how a lot of the lower table sides have been performing very well against the quote-unquote big names. Do you think a part of that is because the fear is gone from bigger teams like City? Um, Yeah, I'd definitely say there's something in that. I mean, even if you just look at... um, just to take City and Chelsea as last season's top two, you take them as the um, as examples. Uh, obviously, Chelsea are a particularly special case this season because their drop off of form has been like nothing. I think like nothing that's been seen in the Premier League era. Uh, but even so, the, their their home form, the the they've both built their their previous successes on. Uh, in the in the two seasons that we've won the Premier League, we've lost. Um, We've lost two home games. I think we dropped five points in total. Last season, we dropped 12 points by January. I think when Arsenal came and beat us at the Etihad last season, that was our 12th point dropped, and I'm sure that was in January. Um, So I think it's not just that the fear factor has gone from playing those teams. It's the fear factor has gone for smaller teams going away to those teams. Um, And... I don't know if this is a, a debate for today, maybe not, but I think... There's an argument to be had about whether that is because the so-called lesser teams in the league have improved, or whether there's a drop-off in quality uh, from from the top teams, and you know the um, the teams over the last four or five years have been the the established front runners. Uh, I think there's a probably an interesting discussion to be had there. Um, I fear that it, it may be the latter, and I'm not sure that in the long term that's for the benefit of the Premier League. But it makes for a hell of an interesting season. Uh, especially one where you've got a team like Leicester who are producing the levels of consistency that no other team can. Um, it's incredible. It's fantastically exciting. Yeah, and kind of following from there to what Steve mentioned earlier about how Arsenal picked up an unremarkable win this week, that's something that a lot of teams have been incapable of doing this year. I, I would love to get undeserved. Uh, undeserved is harsh, but I would love to get boring wins. We don't really tend to get them. We concede late. We like to make things interesting. Uh, so anyway, Steve, kind of count your blessings on that point, I guess is what I'm, what <laughs> well, I'm saying there. Uh, Jake, speaking of matches where Tottenham thought that they'd win and then didn't, <laughs> obviously lost to Newcastle last weekend. What was your view of that match? Yeah, well, obviously three points lane, as I like to call it now, three three wins in a row. You know, it's always a good fixture for us recently. I don't, I don't know why. It's normally, it's normally a fixture where either we win narrowly or Tottenham just smash us out of the park mm. so you know it's always one of those ones <laughs> and I th- I think I think uh at the weekend it was positive to see sort of the, the team performance like that um I think the players uh worked hard which they haven't done in all games this season as, as is obvious by some of the results like the uh, Crystal Palace game and um the second half against Manchester City I think sometimes the players give up when they concede and I think that's like a, been a problem since Pardew was at the club and that has continued so it's really pleasing uh, for Newcastle fans to see us coming from behind to win a game because I don't think we've done that since um, I think Boxing Day last year and I think before that it was like a, another year as well before we'd done that so it's not something we do frequently um, so that is really positive to see us come from behind to win a game um, and I think I think you, you'll agree Kev that um, even after we conceded the goal, like I think, if anything, our performance like stepped up. There wasn't any mm. sort of sign of Tottenham do- going on to dominate the game. Um, and then, you know, the I mean, you you said to me um, earlier in the week about uh, Perez and Mitrovic, how you thought yeah. they should have started the game. But I think I think overall, it's probably the correct decision to start Sim De Jong because I think he adds a lot of calmness to the team. And I think he's sort of a leader 
which is something we've lacked a lot because Colaccini isn't really a natural leader. I don't know why. I think Steve McCarran is probably regretting letting him keep the captaincy because I think he's a big reason for why we've done so badly this season. And I think I think with De Jong, he sort of adds a bit of uh, calmness and he sort of, um, you know, shouts a lot when he's on the pitch. And I think that's really important for a, a team uh, as young as we are because we do have a lot of uh, young players in the in the team. So it's important that we have those sort of leaders to, uh, on the pitch, uh, as many of them as we can. And I think he, he's a player that I think should get a lot more game time. It's hard because, you know, we, Mitrovic and Perez are obviously two very talented players who are going to go on to achieve uh, a lot more than uh, being a, uh, a forward for Newcastle United because I think they've both got a lot of talent and uh, at the moment you know they're, they're not in the team but it's exciting times for Newcastle that we have these sort of players as well as like Genie Wijnaldum and you know they're, they're really good attacking players and I think if you look at these players individually we should be a lot oh if you look at our squad as a whole we should be a lot higher up the Premier League than we are and I think the last two performances I mean we've beaten the two most informed clubs in the league outside of Leicester, because I think Liverpool, they were on that mad, mad run before we uh, beat them, and Tottenham hadn't lost a Premier League game since uh, the opening day, so mm. it's really good that we could get those sort of wins, and it should be a big confidence booster ahead of you know our next game against Aston Villa. So, you know, it, I mean, this weekend's going to be, you know, quite a... It'll, it'll show a lot about where we are as a club, because, you know, it's all right going and beating like Tottenham and Liverpool when you've got no pressure on them, but when Aston Villa come to St James's Park and we're, we're favourites to win the game I think we'll, we'll see a lot more about where, where the club are and you know where we are as a club whether we're able to take it on and move up the division to the, to the top half where I think we should be based on our players or whether we, we're going to be in a relegation fight because we just have that poor mentality within the squad but yeah I, th- I think you know I, I've it's been interesting to see the reaction of Newcastle fans this season because you know obviously we we've been made a joke out of a lot of the time you know to see how well Pardew has gone on at Palace and you know how we hounded him out of the club which I still think was the right thing I don't, I don't think he was ever going to take us on to do anything better I think it was always about Pardew when he was at the club but it was never sort of about about the fans or you know the team it was he always made it about him and you know I'm not I'm I still don't um you know, regret him leaving. I think um, I think with McLaren, he understands the club a lot better. I mean, even after some of our heaviest defeats, he's, every game he's gone to clap the fans and he's always, you know, taken his, his share of the responsibility. And I think he, he does understand football in the North East, which is, you know, massively important if you're going to be manager of Newcastle. And like the fans haven't really got on his back. I mean, after the Palace game, there was a bit of bit of pressure on him. You know, people were wondering whether he was a losing, he was a coach with a losing mentality who's taken on a squad with a losing mentality, and whether that was just only going to ever end in a relegation fight. But I think, you know, he's he's worked quietly behind the scenes. You could see the um, upturn in performances week on week. And you know, I think I think we are moving in the right direction. And I think going forward into January, you know, we've. I think there'll be money spent again. I mean, we spent a lot of money in the summer, but I think there'll be money spent again. And I think, I mean, there were rumours we could even break our transfer record, which hasn't been broken since we brought in Michael Owen, which is, you know, incredible when you think about it. When you think uh, other clubs to spend money money at will, and I, I, like even Sunderland, they brought in Darren Brent a couple of seasons ago. Well, you know, three or four seasons ago, and, you know... Mm-hmm. I think it's it's about time we broke our uh, transfer record. So that, that was really interesting uh, going forwards. And yeah, I think I think as, as much as we're a bit of a joke club, I think we are moving in the right direction. I think Mike Ashley knows he hasn't managed, he hasn't sort of run the club as it should be run, and it's 
positive that we are starting to get a bit of stability and you know i i think things will improve go uh, going into 2016 and i don't think we we'll, we will be in the relegation fight for much longer really say hello to a new era of mental health care cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online You'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, I think we were wrong too early in the season. I list McLaren as the people on their way out very early as he's now survived Monk losing his job, Sherwood, Mourinho, which we'll touch on later. You also mentioned uh, your transfer record potentially being broken. There have been a lot of discussions between Tottenham and Newcastle about Townsend. The offer was lower, uh, which was fine, and now other teams have come in. Is that a player that you would actively be willing to potentially pay value or a little bit ahead of? Um, well, this week I've seen... Uh, a couple of different prices touted about Townsend. And I mean, the first one I saw, which was around seven or eight million, which I think is probably what he's worth, to be honest, because he's not in the team at Tottenham. Mm. And you can't, you can't expect a Premier League club to pay upwards of 10 million for a player that is nowhere near <laughs> the start of I mean, Levy will, but, yeah, but he shouldn't, it, yeah. I, 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 would be, I wouldn't be against signing him. I think he's a, he's a talented player. I think we, we lack wingers in our squad as well, so we'd definitely add that. And, you know, he, he is English, which we do lack, you know, in, in our squad, so that's always a, uh, a good thing. But, you know, he's, he's very inconsistent. I think he's quite, you know, selfish when he plays. He has a bit of tunnel vision, which, you know, might, might not be the best thing for, uh, for us because we want a winger that, you know, would supply Mitrovic in the long run. And I don't think Townsend is that player, but, you know, if, if he was available for seven or eight million, I I would probably want us to go in for him. Just, you know, he'd be a good option to have. And we do lack that squad depth, but I think there are better players out there, definitely. Yeah, for sure. I, I think, yeah, anywhere from eight to ten, and I think it benefits all parties. 
He's cleared out of Tottenham. You get a winger that you need. He gets the chance to get into an England squad that he doesn't deserve to be, but he inexplicably will likely be a part of. Uh, so yeah, I think from a Tottenham side, we'd be willing to do that. And I do feel a little bad that just because Southampton have come sniffing around that the price may increase, because I think that that would have been a perfectly acceptable deal. Uh, in other Tottenham news, I spent five and a half hours of my day yesterday listening to the Herringy Council meeting, which is in a country I don't even live in. Um, but very fun <laughs> indeed, as they were debating the approval of Tottenham's stadium plans. Uh, and in the end, it was approved, but I will never forget the 25 minutes when I listened to people arguing about shadow trajectories uh, throughout different times of day and throughout, indeed, different seasons. But, uh, again, the good news, the, the plan has been approved pending uh, approval by the mayor, Boris Johnson. So uh, I really hope that he approves it. Otherwise, I can't imagine being able to explain to people why I spent five and a half hours doing that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's very exciting for the club. I've seen a lot of people bashing one of the councillors who uh, claimed he wasn't a West Ham fan and that voted against everything. And everyone's like, ha ha, we caught you. His huge thing was that the health center uh, is guaranteed to operate for six years and not longer. And his question was, why isn't it uh, indefinite? And the club really didn't have a good answer to that. So I... I don't even live there, and I understand where he was coming from. So if you're in the Tottenham area and are throwing you know, insults at this guy, I think it might be a little off base, as I am entirely partial, because I don't know who any of these people are. Um, but that to the side, uh, it looks like Moussa Dembele has returned to training, which is really big for us. I think that that was part of our issues uh, against Newcastle, is that when it came time to kind of hold down once we'd gotten the lead, which we shouldn't have been doing, but then we tried to do and weren't successful at it, I think Dembele would have been of great help there and was obviously crucial in our 14-match unbeaten streak. Uh, I, I agree with a lot of the things Jake said about the Newcastle match, and I, I'm just going to echo what I said on Sunday's show, which was I'm not so sure that a loss here was necessarily the worst thing. It had gotten to a point where it kind of felt like we were aiming to not lose instead of you know striving to really chase matches and, and win. Um, so yes, it was a disappointing result, but a lot of other big teams still dropped points as well. So not too, uh, upset about it. Although at the time I, I wasn't happy, but, um, it, it didn't end up being as horrible as it could have been with Liverpool dropping points as well. Uh, so yeah, all in all at Tottenham, things seem to be looking up. Uh, they did say uh, in that meeting, not to backtrack too much, but, uh, they asked why Tottenham had already started building without having permission. And they were like, oh, well, we were preparing it. And they were like, you started laying groundwork, which is apparently against that. And they were like, oh, sorry. <laughs> which I thought was genius from a billion-dollar company. Uh, but I digress. We're all here. Well, A, because, you know, we like talking to you. But also because the the news of the day, of which there's been very little, but aside from that, Jose Mourinho has, by mutual consent, which a lot of people seem to be missing, saying Chelsea sacked, by quote-unquote mutual consent, has left Chelsea Football Club. There's a lot of rumors flying around about who the options are, whether it be Hiddink or Juan de Ramos, which makes me laugh every time. Uh, people like that, maybe Diego Simeone taking over in the summer. Richard already mentioned that uh, they're sniffing around Pep Guardiola, who City have been hoping to lock down for quite some time. I guess let's just start at the top. Do you think it was the right decision now? And what's the best case 
regardless of who they bring in. What's what's the best Chelsea can do? If everything goes right, come the end of the year, where are they? Um, I must admit, I was genuinely surprised by this. Um, I know that a lot of people will say they saw it coming and, and, and were right. Um, but when I saw the headline, I get uh, on my phone, I get the headlines for the sports stuff coming up just when I check the time. Um, and it just literally blindsided me uh, when I checked the time that soon after it happened. And it really surprised me that Chelsea didn't stick with them, with him because I, I really thought they would. Um, but I suppose results speak in the end. Um, whether it's the right thing to do, I don't think it was, uh, personally. I'm a bit, I'm a bit conflicted on it. Um, I said last week uh, that uh, not on on this podcast, but elsewhere, I said last week that it was ridiculous of Swansea to get rid of Gary Monk um, because they weren't in that. I don't. I still don't think they're in too much danger of going down this year. And no manager is ever going to learn how to turn a club around if they don't have a chance to turn a club around. You can't. You know. You can't do it. You can't always rely on a new manager bounce to turn a club around. Um, and Arsene Wenger has proven that, you know, they've gone through tougher times. But if you stick with him, then there's a chance that you might just come out of the other side. And so far this year, um, Brendan Rodgers um, earlier on wasn't allowed the chance. Um, Swansea haven't allowed Gary Monk the chance, which I think is the most ridiculous of them. And Chelsea uh, um, haven't allowed Jose Mourinho the chance. <laughs> If he was the A-plus manager that everybody believes him to be, then I think he would, he should have been given the chance and he would have turned it around. They may not have ended up in the Champions League, but I don't see how anybody else, besides winning a few points on the, in inverted commas, new manager bounce, um, I don't see how anybody else is going to, um, make a bigger impact. Okay, and perhaps he had lost the dressing room, and perhaps it's difficult to bring that back. But again, no manager is going to learn how to regain the trust of that he's lost in players if they're not given the chance to do that. Um, and it, as I say, it is a bit conflicted because I can't stand Jose Mourinho, <laughs> and part of me is really pleased that I don't have to put up with him on match of the day or chatting away like that. All the uh, granted, for the next few days, all the headlines are going to be about Jose Mourinho. But then after that, I don't have to put up with him anymore. That's a personal thing. Um, but as I say, conflicted because I don't think they should have got rid of him. And I don't think anyone they can bring in is going to be a better manager than him. Um, and then on the flip side of that, I was really enjoying the fact that his real, his weird mini meltdown was, uh, was adversely affecting Chelsea. So kind of conflicted in three different directions. Um but in terms of who's the best available option, it looks like Hiddink is going to be the short-term fix. Following that, I don't know if it's going to be a great fix for Guardiola. Um, or, or a great fit for Guardiola, I should say. Um, I, I can see him more at um, a, a Man City um, than at a Chelsea. Because Chelsea... As much as Abramovich want, uh, he wants to play a flair-filled attacking game, which seems seemed to have been his kind of raison d'etre until he bought Jose Mourinho again. Um, I don't think that. I think there's something intrinsic in the group of players that they have 
that won't allow that to happen. Um, they have some fair, some flair players there, but a lot of it is a lot of their power was built or was built on their solidity at the back, and that was what Jose Mourinho built everything else on. So I, I think Simeone perhaps might do a better job because he's brought uh, Atletico Madrid up to challenge the big two in Spain um, through kind of a mixture of that sort of a bit of flair, but mostly through brute strength and kind of team togetherness. And if the team has been lost and if the squad isn't together, there's there's a quality squad there. So if someone can bring them together, then um, he might be the person to do it. So, yeah, Simeone, I think, will probably be the best choice for, for that. Um, but um, only time will tell, I guess. I, th- I think they've made a big, a big mistake uh, and that whoever comes in for the remainder of the year isn't going to get them any higher than they would have been if they'd stuck with Jose Mourinho yeah. uh, until May, at least. Yeah, one of the Chelsea board members was quoted as saying the decision was partially made due to a, quote, palpable discord between the manager and the players. Richard, what's your take on all of the today's news? Um, I would um, I would agree with um, the overall point about, um, you know, sacking culture and managers not being given time to, um, to learn how to turn a club around and that kind of thing. I, I do agree with the overall point, um, 100%. But I think in this specific case, we're talking about something almost unprecedented, something spectacular, that uh, for a Premier League champion, uh, you know, a, a team of champions, the champions, to sit at this point in the season, one point above the relegation zone, and where news reports can legitimately talk about um, about this weekend's fixture, where they can legitimately use the line, Chelsea will face fellow Premier League strugglers Sunderland, right? That is that is a spectacular case. It's, it's more than a fall from grace, and it's more than a loss in form. And I think, I mean, your first question was, are they right to have sacked Mourinho now? And I would say that, without wanting to buy into the, the short-termism of football, I, I would have thought after the Liverpool defeat or after the Stoke defeat would have been, um, in terms of saving Chelsea's season, um, I would have thought that would have been a, a better time to have made a change because it was clear at that point that things weren't right. Um, and even before that, and, and this is going to sound really idealistic, so I, I accept there may be some disagreement, but I, the... the <laughs> I thought his treatment of um, of Dr. Eva at the start of the season, in, in almost any workplace, that was a, a sackable offence because his it had some exceptionally nasty undertones to it that are hard to go into without slandering him for something he was, um, he was not proven to have done. Um, but... I, there were some nasty undertones to the way that he spoke about um, about Dr. Eva, who was only treating a player or trying to treat a player who was feigning injury. And it was clear at that point that something wasn't right with Mourinho, and it's dead easy to say with hindsight. Um, but it was widely known, or at least widely reported, that the Chelsea players and staff had a great deal of respect for, uh, for Eva Canero. And you would think that the manager coming out and so publicly lambasting her for doing her job is not something that's going to endear him to his squad. And so if there were any hints of cracks over the summer, anything like that, then that's a problem for him straight off. Um, and then it, it was mentioned earlier that, um, you know, in, enjoying his mini meltdown, and I have fully, uh, although at times found him infuriating, I fully enjoyed seeing the dents to his pride and his ego. 
um, because I think he has become, he hasn't always been, but I think he has become an odious character. It started at Madrid um, when he spoke of Barcelona being allowed to beat Madrid in, in the Champions League semi-final because they had UNICEF on the shirts. He's been on a downward spiral since then, in my opinion. Um, clearly, he's had some great success with Chelsea. Winning the league last season easily was a, a magnificent achievement, adding the, uh, the Capital One Cup to that as well. Um, he's a he's a brilliant brilliant manager, but there are things this season that go way beyond what's happening on the pitch. Um, his refusal, and I understand for feeding the ego and for wanting to make people trust you, openly saying publicly. I made a mistake or this was my fault. I understand that that's a very difficult thing to do and, and maybe maybe it would be ill-advised for somebody who, whose stature, who has a stature and carries the weight that Mourinho does. Um, but to constantly be making the excuses that he makes, to talk of campaigns against Chelsea, to hijack Sunday morning football discussions by ringing up a TV show and asking to be on so he could spend two hours bleating on about how Chelsea... Um, uh, unloved by referees. That was last season, and it it didn't go too much against him last year. This season, when it's clear that he's been getting things wrong, that his team are getting things wrong, to constantly blame referees is so tiresome. I mean, the, the prime example was it the the Southampton defeat when his default position was to moan about penalties that Chelsea weren't awarded. Wait, was that the one where he said he refused to accept the result? Uh, yeah, Wasn't I think that, that one. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. He called the defeat against us a fake result when we played them off the park. The Southampton defeat, I think Southampton were denied two clear-cut penalties and Chelsea's objectively the one that they played for. I think, if I remember rightly, it either wasn't a penalty or it was far more debatable than the two Southampton should have had. Um, and Chelsea have wrapped themselves in, in his image where their website has become a propaganda machine for anything that Mourinho says. So when they write match reports after they've been taken apart by a team the the match report focuses on not not in a like shedding a positive light but just in lying i mean it, it's it's literally the whole club has been molded in Mourinho's image and i find i don't have a problem with chelsea as such but i find Mourinho to be a detestable character a great manager unquestionably and his record is there to be respected um but it's fallen down around him and that character to me is a large part of of Chelsea's uh, failures this season. He can get away with it when they're successful. But, <clears throat> excuse me, um, he now he now undermines the squad with the way that he speaks about them, with the way that he speaks to the press. With And I just, I, I don't find that a, a good public image to present. When it, it used to be, it had a certain charm to it 10 years ago. <clears throat> excuse me, a dry throat. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I think he, he's lost all that and just, He's a caricature of, of what was once funny and charming and and witty and brilliant. Um, and, and it's all gone, in my opinion. Um, and then quickly, because I can't really add uh, much to the previous point on, on who should manage Chelsea, because I, I would agree that Simeone seems the best fit. Um, I would disagree that there isn't uh, much to be gained from the new manager bounce, because if you recall when they sacked uh, Andre Villas-Boas and they put Roberto Di Matteo in charge, his sole job that season was don't be Andre Villas-Boas. And he went in and he wasn't Andre Villas-Boas and lo and behold, he won the Champions League. And Roberto Di Matteo is not a good manager, uh, in in my opinion. He's he's not tactically astute. Um, yeah, I thought he'd do really well when he went to Germany and uh, he didn't. <laughs> yeah, so the, what he did with Chelsea was built... It, 
from the outside, it seemed like it was largely built on correcting a fractured squad. And that seems to be, again, we're you know only looking at it from the outside. It seems to be what the job is again now Mourinho's gone. Um, so <clears throat> I, would, I think Chelsea have made the right decision. In terms of saving their season, I think they've made it too late. There are no hopers for the Champions League, uh, but they might make top six. Yeah, I think the top six is probably the best they could do as well. Jake, what can they do from here on out to, to help improve everything there? Do you think the group of players perhaps were a bigger issue than some are claiming, or do you think it is just kind of all at Mourinho's feet? No, I I, I think it was um, down to the players completely. I think there's a terrible attitude of that Chelsea squad. I think you can see it when they're, when they're on the pitch, you know, the lack of effort. I think in the Premier League at the moment, you know, you win matches on effort. If you don't put the effort in and you don't cover the ground, you're not going to win matches. And this Chelsea team just doesn't do that. And I don't think, you know, that's, I mean, I don't think that's down to Mourinho. Obviously, he has to take a lot of the, he has to take a significant portion of the blame because he is the manager. He picks a side, he does the training. And, you know, he's he's there to motivate the players and they just haven't been motivated. But I think this Chelsea squad, like it has been for the last five, six years, they just, they're so self-involved in themselves and they're so, they think they're bigger than the club and they think, you know, they they should have a say in, like, how the club is managed. Like, people like John, uh, John Terry, you know, formerly Frank Lampard, and now even, I'd say, Diego Costa feels like he's bigger than the manager. And, you know, I think, it's this attitude that's the problem at Chelsea. I think the problems at Chelsea are so uh, deep-rooted and sacking Mourinho is not going to solve them. I, I can't see how a new manager, especially one who has only managed one other club side since his last spell as interim manager of Chelsea and Gus Hedding is going to do any good at all. I mean, you look at him recently, he managed Anzi, you know, when, when they had a lot of money in Russia. That didn't really go that well. I mean, he went and managed Holland and... You know, you would agree as much. Uh, you'd agree with me, Kev, in saying that he is, you know, a, he, is, he is the reason they're not at the Euros. Like, directly, yeah, yeah, he is very much that reason. He he is not the manager he was, and, I think and all probably... he had to do was one tournament to just get us to when Danny Blind had learned how to be a manager. Couldn't do it. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's he is, you know, a dinosaur, and he is not going to be the person to save Chelsea's season. If he came in, I couldn't see them get getting much higher than a mid-table finish. And, you know, that would be if it went well. I mean, I think this Chelsea, this season, as extraordinary as it is to see Chelsea in 16th position, like, if you said to me right now that Chelsea would be in a relegation fight, I would think, yeah, probably they're not going to be. But then we keep we keep thinking this on Chelsea. We keep thinking, oh, it's going to it's gonna get better. It's going to get better. And it just doesn't. Like, it's it's not completely out of the question to see them down there. Like, I I don't know. I think this squad of players, you know, I think they should get a, uh, rid of a lot of them. I feel like the attitude is just not there to become sort of like a dominant side in the division. You know, when they, when they were dominating before, they had like Drogba, Lampard, you know, these types of players, uh, Czech, Check as well, you know, you know they they might be a bit, you know, you know, a bit arrogant, but you know they they took games seriously and they put the work in. I can't, I don't think the same of like Costa and Fabregas. I think you know they're a bit lazy. You know they'll play when they want to play, and I I, I just I'm worried for Chelsea. As as, as funny as it is, you know, <laughs> it, it is it is very bad how how bad they've been, and I I I think that it could it could could get worse before it gets better. You know, I don't think that you know M- Mourinho is is a world class manager. You can't you can't disagree with that. You know, he's won the Champions League with two different clubs. Not many other people have done that. He's you know managed at the biggest clubs in the world, and 
I mean, he's sacked today, but he, he, he's fi- uh, 52 years old, I, I believe. And, you know, that's the same age as Sir Alex Ferguson was when he won his first league title uh, for Manchester United. So he's got a long, lot, you know, he's got a lot of time ahead of him in his career. And he's going to go on and do do great things again at different clubs. You know, I, I think he would he would have turned it around uh, at Chelsea if he was given, you know, complete control over transfers because I don't think he had that if he was given complete control in January to get rid of the players he didn't want and to bring in the players he did want I, I think that it would have improved and that they would have you know moved up the table at the top six and uh, gone on a run in the Champions League yeah. but now I just feel like you know it's it's really concerning where they are right now and it could go anyway like it could get better you know the talent is there for them to you know, to to improve and, you know, the new manager bounce could have an effect and then you'll think, oh, yeah, obviously it was all Mourinho's fault. But I think these players need to take a lot more of the blame. And, you know, I I don't think there's anybody who could, they could get right now that is a better option than Mourinho. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that I think a large part of it is the players. Um, just because we've seen this happen with Chelsea before where they haven't bought into a system or something has happened that's put them off a little bit like when AVB was there, Di Matteo was there, Benitez was there. Most of them tried to get rid of some of the older generation. And Lampard and Czech are the only two that found their way out of Chelsea. And I think an interesting point is when Abramovich decided to sell Czech despite Mourinho's protestations about it. Because I think at that moment, when you're at a club where the owner is already shown to back the players more than the manager... For It was public. Mourinho was quoted saying he didn't want Petrček to go, and especially not to a rival. And Abramovich did it anyway because he thought it was the right thing to do for a player that had been such a good servant of the club. When ownership does that in front of what a manager has been doing at a club where the players already have the control, I think that it enabled a lot of players the ability to speak out against the manager and, if not speak out, at least realize that they were in the more powerful position. And I think it was furthered with the Eva Canero situation where that again frustrated the players and the players knew that they had issues. And then that's when you had individual players going to the press and voicing their displeasure. Uh, And so, yeah, I think that the players, while very responsible for what's been happening, I agree that they haven't been performing nearly as well on the pitch as they could. Uh, I think Costa has been an absolute embarrassment to football on the whole. Spends more time on the ground. People joked about this before, but he legitimately spends more time complaining per match than doing anything with a football. Because he isn't even involved. He just runs to the tip of the spear, and then nobody links him in. Because he's constantly covered by two people, because he's he's sitting there, but he doesn't have the speed to break the offside trap. So he's just standing there with two center backs, talking crap the entire match, offering very little for them. Hazard's obviously been disappointing. Fabregas can't find a pass, which is (laughs) mind-boggling. I do think the players are very much responsible, but I think that potentially Abramovich is the actual problem by continually siding with the players over management. Because if the players did that at a different club and kind of hosted internal coups, they wouldn't be involved anymore. But Abramovich has always had a sympathetic ear for his players, especially the ones that have been there a long time, and I think it largely was the undoing of Mourinho's tenure at the club. Uh, Okay, so quickly, before we leave this topic, will we see Mourinho in England again? Yes or no's? Steve? God, I hope no. Richard? Um, 
Maybe one day at Manchester United, but other than that, no. Jake? I think he could be than we all think. I think he could be back next summer, you know. <laughs> you know. At Manchester City or at Manchester United, I can see him at one of them. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Please, no. <laughs> Richard doesn't want that so much. I also. What does that tell you? What? Sorry, to interrupt. That one of the best what? managers in the in the world. Yeah. And I don't want him at Arsenal. I don't and want Rich him at doesn't all. Doesn't want him at Man City. Like that. What does that tell you about what we've been saying about his character? You don't I want him at Newcastle. I just put that one. <laughs> <laughs> very, very kind of you to offer him a safe landing spot. But yeah, I wouldn't like him either. I think the. I don't think we see him in the Premier League again. I think it would be really interesting if he ever put his foot forward for the England job, though, once Hodgson sits down. He may have burned too many bridges now. I think he's very quickly lost the media darling uh, title that he had when he first came back. But I think that would be a very interesting one if he publicly said he was interested in that job. All right. Well, we uh, have spoken for quite some time already, so unfortunately no time for player watch. But we can jump into match previews where I think I will be leading off with our match against Southampton. Yes, indeed. Uh, We will be going to St. Mary's. This is the match last year where I lost a lot of respect for Southampton uh, fans as a whole. I had been very sympathetic to their cause before. I love Ronald Koeman. I thought that was all great, bringing in Dutch players. I love Jordi Classy. Then last season when they were booing uh, Pochettino and saying he was just a shit Ronald Koeman and all that, I thought that was very distasteful for what he was able to do with that club especially when you look at the finances of how well he capitalized on the young talent he had and sold them i realize he's not the person that put the young players in that academy i'm not one of those people that's somehow oblivious to the previous tenure at southampton i know it was a very good young program but as we've seen again at tottenham the young players were already in both of those academies but he's giving them a chance and it led southampton to making hundreds of millions of pounds over the last two years so I think that that was very harsh, so I'm not a huge fan of Southampton anymore, as I had been. Uh, but for this particular match, I think Tottenham are playing Southampton at the right time. They've been arbitrarily dropping Graziano Pella and Dusan Tadic, who are easily in their best 11 players, probably in their five best. Uh, not really sure what's going on there. Shane Long always scores against us, and it's very frustrating to me. I continue to fail to understand how he is so frustratingly good. Uh, so that will inevitably bite me and he will score in this one, but I'm fairly confident in Tottenham. I don't love the Kane versus Van Dyke matchup as a Tottenham supporter. I really rate Virgil Van Dyke and, and what he's been doing at Southampton, but I think the midfielders in this match will be the ones that kind of dictate what happens. Christian Eriksen has four goals in his last five against Southampton. I'm going to go 2-1 for Tottenham. All right, Jake, what do you see out of your match against Aston Villa, which, as you mentioned, is a, one of the few where Newcastle walk in as clear favorites? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we are on TV, which is a big positive, because if you look at all our results when we've been on TV this season, we, we do a lot better than when we're not. I don't know whether the players think that, you know, when we're not on uh, English TV that nobody sees their performances. I don't know if that's a thing, but maybe it is, because I think we are a stepping stone club, as much as I don't like to say that. And I think a lot of the players see it as an opportunity to sort of showcase their talent when we are, you know, on Sky or BT. So um, as we as we were in our last two matches and we won. So, I mean, we're on TV again this weekend, so hopefully that's a positive. I mean, Aston Villa have been awful this season. I mean, even after Remy Gard came in, who I rate as a coach after what he did at Leon, I just, I just feel that the players aren't there at, at Aston Villa. I, I don't, 
you know, I can't see the goals in that team. Rudy Gestead is, I mean, he came in into Villa with a bit, you know, with scoring on his debut. People say, oh, he's, a, he's great in the air. He's very much a championship striker. And, you know, people like Jordan Ayew, he is not, nowhere near as good as his brother. And, you know, they, they spend a lot of money and they're just not really very good players. So, I mean, and you know, we have a really good team. Um, we're starting to get somewhere. I think maybe CSA shouldn't start this weekend and we should start with uh, De Jong and Perez up front because I think Perez adds a lot of work rate and he, he helps our pressing um, in the final third, which you know was important in our uh, winning in Spurs because I think we didn't give them much time on the ball after Perez came on due to you know, his high work rate and things. So I think... You know, if we start Perez with De Jong, you know, we got Wijnaldum and Sissoko, you know, two very, very good players who on their day can, you know, win games on their own. And, you know, we got, I think we've got a, a solid starting level now with Rob Elliott as well, who I think has played really well since Tim Crawl was injured. So it's it's a game where everything says we should win, but this is Newcastle United and it's definitely a game that if we lost, it would not be surprising. We could lose to them and then go 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 on to Boxing Day and beat Everton, and you know that that, that wouldn't be a surprise at all. But I, I feel if we play uh, even like seventy five percent as well as we have in the last two matches, we should win this. And if we do win this, three wins in a row, we start to climb the table and things look a lot more positive going into um, twenty sixteen. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go go for a nervy two one win. I could see us getting an early goal. Um, and then maybe Mitrovic coming off the bench and getting another before Villa score with like 10 minutes to go and like completely throw the kitchen sink at us. But we, we hold on for a, a narrow win. And if we do that, I think I think it would destroy Aston Villa's confidence. And I'd say it almost certainly they'd, they'd go down because I think this is an important game, for more important for them than it is for us because, you know, we're, we're definitely a team that they could beat. But yeah, I, I, I think we'll win. I, I'm fairly confident of that. So I'll say 2-1 as well. If you beat them, Mourinho to Aston Villa. No, uh, but Aston Villa's uh, poor defense, which you mentioned, uh, conceding an average of 2.2 goals per game over their last six, which is obviously far from stellar. Uh, we'll start with Steve and his half of the Arsenal versus Manchester City preview. Um, well, I did a, a mini one in, in the earlier section um, in terms of what we can expect regarding Alexis Sanchez. Um other than his possible inclusion, I can't see too much of a change, to be honest, from from the formula that's won us the last couple of games. Um, five goals over two games, none conceded. I don't see why you would change that. While Joel Campbell has really come on leaps and bounds and he's been winning people over week by week with his excellent performances. So, so I think it'll be a very similar setup with Walcott on the right, Giroud up front. Um, Campbell on the left, you, the two in midfield, Flamini, the only two we have for central midfield at the moment, which is Flamini and Ramsey, and then the Jacks and the uh, and uh, the Murtishelny in the middle, and of course checking goal. In terms of where the game could go, it could, I mean, predicting this Premier League season is harder than any other Premier League season I've, I know. So it could be nil nil. Um, or it could be four all or or more. Um, so yeah, I'm I I'm not going to make a prediction purely because it, anything could happen, and I'm just going to sit and watch the game, probably through my fingers. Um, it will it will be telling um, in terms of the title race, of course, um, because 
it will give one or the other the upper hand in terms of that battle, as I said, below below Leicester. Um, however, I wouldn't call it a six-pointer. Um, with the way this season has gone, if City win and go above Arsenal this week, they could just as well lose the following week and Arsenal could win and go back above them or or City could build a gap or, 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 or you know, the flip side, Arsenal could build a gap from City with, win, with a win in this game and then next week, the following week, lose to, I don't know, Stoke. Um, while, which actually isn't that bad at the moment because Stoke are playing well, but you know what I mean. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it is as vital um, a game as it could. It is a big game in terms of its two title challenges. But in terms of its result, the way that the results have been so topsy-turvy this season, uh, I don't see it being as vital. But obviously, it'd be nice to go into the festive period with a win. Sorry, Richard. Yeah, hope. Um, oh, well, obviously, I think the same for us. Um, and so I hope you don't get that nice little Christmas bonus. Um, <laughs> for us, um, the result is crucial, but only in so much as we have to not lose this game. One of the things that, um, a stat that keeps jumping out at me, and I try not to um, to go too much off stats or what's happened in the past because like this is an extraordinary season, but I can't get away from the fact that no Premier League champion has ever won the league with more than seven defeats. And you have to go back to um, Blackburn in 94 to find when that last happened. City are already on four. And it's already difficult for me to not see us losing at least another four, um, just because we're so open and so easy to get at. And as I said before, there's such a blueprint for how to beat City. Um, But if we were to lose on Monday night, um, which is very possible, then that would be a fifth defeat. And it just, regardless of what the actual points difference is and how close we remain in there, to keep getting defeats would be such a, a huge knock to the team's confidence. And Pellegrini's City don't have a good record in big games as it is. City don't have a good record at the Emirates. So there's already um, there's already previous form to plant that seed of doubt. Um so just just on those factors, I, I worry a little bit about what the pressure might do to City in this game. Um, but certainly, if, if we were to come away from it with a draw, I would I would definitely see that as a, a positive result at this point. To go away to a title rival and, and get a draw at this stage of the season is never a bad thing. Um, in terms of what to expect from the way that we set up, I would imagine um, it'll be Kolarov at left-back. cliche has been getting a bit of a shout since he came back from his injury, but I think Kolarov will be will be retaking his place at left-back um, and Sanya should be expecting uh, a game against his old club. Um, we have recently tried Gael Klesi at right-back again, but it just doesn't work, um, but needs must because Zabalet is injured and Sanya needed a rest. So I think uh, I think it was the Munchen-Gladbach game where we put Klesi at right-back. And it's, he's just never looked right there, which is understandable because it, it's not his position. Um, Otam, I would expect Otamendi and Mangala will be uh, partnered together again, which, for reasons that I've already run through, worries me greatly. They are Otamendi individually is a, a fine defender. He is a wonderful mix of uh, aggression and uh, excellent timing, wonderful reading of the game, which means that when he's on it, he's there's not many teams can get past him um but when he's tethered to mangala then th- that's a problem for us because 
they, they just don't look right together. They both look better next to Vincent Company. They both give the best performances next to Vincent Company, but he's not available. Uh, there is talk that Aguero should be. Uh, he's been back in training, and Pellegrini uh, said this last time I was on, but Pellegrini loves to throw him in, even if he's only firing at 80%, and you can fully understand um, why you would feel the press would need to do that, because he's by far and away our, our best striking option. <clears throat> um, I think... I wouldn't be surprised to see Fernando, Fernandinho and Yaya Torre all in midfield, although personally I would love to see Delft taking Fernando's place there. What absolutely must not happen is Fernando must not be in a two-man midfield with Fernandinho because um, it, it doesn't take much of a, an understanding of football to know that Fernando cannot play in a two-man midfield. He's been a disaster every time he's, he's been put in that, that situation. Um, he needs massive amounts of support he can he's a, a very able footballer but he's also very limited so if he's left to do his job of breaking up play and then popping the ball off easily to Yaya Fernandinho or Delph then um, then he's fine but if he's asked to do more than that then he will struggle and he will get exposed and he will lose his head and go diving recklessly into tackles and leave the team massively exploited at the back, which then doesn't help with the problems that Otamendi and Mangala have because you're forcing a pressure onto them that they are currently proven not to be able to handle as a partnership. Um, so I'm, I'm really worried that Pellegrini is not going to listen to this beforehand and will still go with Fernando. Um but I just desperately hope not. I think Kevin De Bruyne will step back in. He was a he was a um, he came on as a substitute against Swansea, so I'd expect him to start again. Um, Raheem Sterling will start, and at their best, they those players with Aguero up front will cause a, a hell of a lot of problems for Arsenal. I think um, the way they open up space for each other is is really quite something mm-hmm. to see. The, way, the um, out of all the players you listed as likely to play in midfield, I can't help but notice that David Silva is not amongst them. Sorry, you, you know what? That's because I take him so much as uh, for granted that he's going to start, and so it's right. Very but if, if you have Toure and then the Fernandes both yeah. play and. Also De Bruyne and also Sterling and also Aguero. There's not a space for Silva. That I would probably say that if that were to happen, then De Bruyne would be the one to make way, just because he's been a little bit not bad, um, but he's been he's been slightly off form uh, recently. He looks tired. Uh, I think maybe there's a mental thing there because he's been shifted so much around the front line, uh, which he's capable of doing technically. But while Silva was out, I think that got to De Bruyne a little bit. Um, I would, yeah, you're right. I would expect Silva to start, and maybe that does negate the. Um, or hopefully, that makes the Fernando decision. I would, I would be quite happy with uh, Yaya and Fernandinho as um, anchor in the midfield. I'd be, be very happy with that. Um, I think Pellegrini proved. I showed it's very rare that he does it, but in the in the game at United this season, that he's actually learned to be a bit pragmatic, and he chose the wrong game to do it. But he's shown that actually he's got a bit of pragmatism about him in a big game. So maybe maybe he will employ that against Arsenal. But I just I can't. One thing that I can't see, um, and it was said that it could be a nil nil draw. I absolutely don't see that because I don't trust us to keep a clean sheet. Um, if I'm being optimistic, I would put us down for a point. Um, and I'd probably. I'd, it is really hard to nail a prediction for this one. Actually, um, I'd go for a repeat of last season's scoreline uh, of of two all. Um, and yeah, I would hope that, like I said, that the midfield is the, the key issue. And 
Sterling, Silva, De Bruyne behind Aguero is probably the most likely option. But it's been Pellegrini's preferred option when they've all been fit, which has been a um, too much of a rarity. Uh, and so hopefully it'll be Yaya and Fernandinho in the middle, although I wouldn't complain if Delft was in for either of those two. All right, well, thank you all so much for your previews there. We are now very out of time, but if you have any projects you'd like to plug or want to tell people where to reach you, now would be a good time. Uh, I'll be quick then. At Find Pub Sport on Twitter, Find Pub Sport on Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Um, it, I'll go with uh, if you could check out, uh, if any City fans want to check out typicalcity.org. Uh, it's a, like a dedicated uh, Manchester City blog. Uh, there's also the Blue Moon podcast, which is released every Friday. Um, is a, obviously a dedicated Manchester City podcast um, and coming up on Christmas Day for anybody who wants a little bit of my voice with their turkey or while they're opening presents there's a Christmas Day special that we recorded in a local pub um, highlights, lowlights, best players of the season all that kind of stuff um, and that also features Rob Pollard who regular listeners will know as another City voice um, so that was good fun if anybody wants to listen to it we would appreciate it Yeah, I've just... Uh... Uh, written an article on Jose Perez for EPL Index and why he should be a top target for Spurs come January. So Ooh. check that out. And uh, yeah, for anything else, you can just get me on Twitter at Jig Jackman with two N's. Yeah, I'd like to see a little big man, little man with Kane there. Uh, you can find me, of course, here on the FPL Roundtable, which comes out Thursday mornings. Uh, I write for blog.playtalker.com and theeaglesbeak.com, and I made a couple appearances this week. One on the Fan Feud Fantasy Football Podcast, and also on All in Sports Talk with Dave Hendrick, who is often appearing on this show. So thanks so much for joining us, guys. It's been a pleasure as always. We hope you keep listening, and may the force be with you. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.